I was driving to work. I was driving to work on Thursday morning, listening to a podcast. Uh, my son, I take, I take, take him to, to school, and then I uh, go to church, and he hates this podcast. He's like, do we have to listen to the talking people again? He hates talk radio, right? And I, I listened to this podcast by Al Mohler. Al Mohler, Albert Mohler, is the president of a Southern Baptist seminary down south. I don't always agree with everything that he says, but I do uh, respect and appreciate his perspective. He's got a podcast called The Briefing. The Briefing. If you would listen to it, you would discover what The Briefing is. He says, this is Al Mohler with The Briefing, a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview, right? That's what it is. So I listened to that because he talks about news and events from a Christian worldview. And I think, I heard a, an old dead guy, actually I read an old get, dead guy say this once. He said, a good preacher, as he preaches, does so with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. I think that part of my job is to keep an eye on current events and the state of kind of our culture and the modern world and uh, what's happening with our neighbors and in, in society. And then hopefully, every Sunday, bring biblical truth to bear on what I see happening in the world. So I listen to this podcast. I listen to it, but I don't love it. I don't love listening to it because it almost tr always troubles my spirit. The guy's sort of a pessimist, right? He's not like the most uplifting guy. And that's because he covers the news. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the news is not always the most uplifting. Usually it's less than that. So it troubles my spirit. As I look out on the culture and everything that's happening, from issues to abortion, uh, the redefinition of marriage, all the stuff about gender and the confusion of gender, the curbing of religious liberty that is probably going to come on a little bit more steadily now. Uh, freedom of speech is under attack. If you've seen some of the big tech stuff in a lot of ways, that's alarming to me. It troubles my spirit. As I got to thinking about that driving into work, I thought, I wonder how many of you all have troubled spirits as well. Now, Maybe some of you are disgruntled or troubled about the news, but maybe not. Maybe you kind of like to keep your head and buried in the sand and just not pay much attention to it, which more power to you. Maybe it's a diagnosis that you've received that's got you troubled in your heart or in your spirit. Maybe you're waiting to hear back from the doctor. Perhaps it's a court case. Maybe you got pulled over for speeding or something else and you're waiting to hear what the judge is going to say. Some of y'all are younger. You're looking at education in high school or college. And you're troubled in your spirit about what you're going to do next. What are you going to do when you get big, right? That's troubling for a lot of us. Maybe some of you are already in the workforce, and you're troubled in your spirit because of the economic situation, and you keep hearing about cuts and layoffs in your workplace. Maybe it's the markets. Maybe you're close to retirement, and you keep seeing the government hand out trillions of dollars to everybody and their brother, and you think, man, I'm on a fixed income. I know the market's doing really well, but... How much longer before inflation takes, takes hold? Some of you are like, man, I didn't think of that, but now I do. Now I'm troubled in spirit. You're welcome. <laughs> right? So maybe it's that. Maybe it's, maybe it's all the smut in the media. I, I like to watch football. Go pack. Right? It's still one of the more innocent things that I can watch with my family. And yet, sometimes I'm troubled in my spirit when the commercials come on. Some of those commercials are like soft corn pornography, or I don't know what our culture's fascination is with like horror and evil, wicked things, but like stuff comes on about people solving murders and they're showing off. It's like, I, my five-year-old is here. My three-year-old, I don't want them to see that. That's troubling. There's a lot of things as Christians 
that trouble us in our spirits. How many of y'all have been troubled by a dream? You know one of those where you wake up and you think, what, what was that? And then you can't go back to sleep? You're, you're troubled. You wake up and you wonder, what in the world was that? Was that God? Was that the burrito I ate last night? Like, what is happening, right? Dreams are pretty common for everybody. Everybody has dreams. Most times, I believe dreams are from our imagination or the burrito that we ate, you know, not, not really that significant. But our imaginations are not the only source for our dreams. The Bible presents this, makes a pretty strong case for it. Dreams can be given to you by God. I'm not a cessationist. I believe the gifts are still active. I think we should seek the giver of those gifts and not the gifts themselves, but we believe in, in the Holy Spirit. He's active and he can do what he wants. I think he gives dreams sometimes. That said, I think the demonic can also give dreams. And you can, you can take this as kind of a, a general truth, but generally speaking, if God creates it, and we believe and think the Bible teaches, it's safe to assume that Satan will counterfeit it. If God creates it, it's safe to assume demons and Satan can counterfeit it. That said, dreams are real. Sometimes they're meaningless figments of our imagination. Other times, they can carry some more meaning. Sometimes they can be very troubling. If you read Daniel ahead, Daniel, if you read Daniel ahead, like I asked you to, if you did your homework, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I do want you to know I have gold stars that I'll put in your Bible afterwards. Please read ahead. I'm joking. I, don't have, I shouldn't lie. I don't have gold stars. Don't come see me. But seriously, you should read ahead. You should read ahead because the chapters are long, and for the sake of time, because you don't want to pack lunches, we're not going to read it every Sunday. So please read ahead so your head is in it. If you did read ahead, you know where I'm going with all the dream stuff, right? King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and that dream robbed him of sleep and troubled him in his spirit. He saw something in his dreams that shook him to the core, and he, when he woke up, he went about trying to calm his nerves. And I want you to know this. I want you to think about this for a second. What do you do when you get nervous, when you're troubled in spirit? What we turn to to try and calm our nerves reveals a lot about where our trust lies, what we believe in. The, the way one goes about trying to calm their nerves tells you a significant amount of information about them. It tells you where their faith, where their trust, where their beliefs truly lie. We can say a lot with our mouths, but our actions communicate a lot about what we truly believe. This is true about what happens when we get anxious and troubled. And verse 2 of our text tells us that the king was troubled. He was troubled because of a dream that he had, and then it says that he commanded the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, that's these, this group of people, he summoned them. He summoned them before the king. When the king of Babylon was troubled in his spirit, we're told that he turned to his religion, the religion of Babylon. He called on the experts, the experts in magic, sorcery, the alchemists, the scientists, the astrologers, the guys with more degrees than Fahrenheit, right? The ones that were educated at the University of Babylon. The king turned to paganism. Now, paganism is kind of a churchy word. It's an old word, right? You pagan, you heathen. We don't really say that a whole lot. It's maybe offensive to some people if you call that. So I wanted to give you a brief definition on what a paganist worldview looks like or what it is. Essentially, paganism is a worldview that places authority with the gods, Usually, the gods are sort of undefined. There's a, 
indefinite number of them, and they can't be known personally, right? But they can be manipulated through magic, through magical phrases and incantations. If the stars are in the right place, if the season is at the right time, if you say the right words, then you can get what you want from these supposed gods. Paganism is highly spiritual. It's supernatural. It has some power. It's very superstitious. It's also incredibly demonic. It's not of the Lord. Wicca would be the modern-day equivalent of what pagan, pagan Babylonian religion is back then. Wicca would be something very similar to that. Wicca is not incredibly popular, although it is growing as a religion. Our culture is not getting less supernatural, less spiritual. We're actually getting more so. And it's not necessarily in paganism, but it's something like it. It's like this Hindu spiritual New Age movement. It's sweeping across our nation. It's infiltrating the church in a lot of ways. Keep your ears tuned to it. I don't know if you know this or not, but my Packers are going to win today and go to the Super Bowl. I love the Packers and what they do in the football field. When the quarterback and some of the members of the team get up and start talking about their beliefs and how they do certain things, if you listen, especially to Aaron Rodgers, he starts to say things like, yeah, we just really visualize what we want and then we manifest it out on the football field. He starts talking about energy forces and crystals and channeling this stuff and getting in touch with the universe and all that. All of that is new age mysticism. It's yoga, the chakra stuff. Listen for it. You'll see it. It's all over. It's all over. Crystals and energy forces and sound scientists, scientific, all of this stuff. It's paganism. It's not identical to paganism, but it's Hindu new age spirituality, and it parallels a lot of the practices that, that was going on in Babylon during the time. And it too is demonic. It's demonic. So the king, he's shaken, he's anxious. When his spirit is troubled, he turns to paganism, to his religion for comfort. He demands that these spiritual gurus, these experts, that they not only interpret his dream, but they tell him what his dream was first. It's a tall order. If you're married this morning, perhaps you've wished for the ability to read your spouse's mind. Maybe You've even reminded them that you're not able to do that, right? Right? Not talking about my marriage. I would never say anything like that. As it turns out, the sorcerers, they couldn't read the king's mind either. In fact, they were pretty upset. They're outraged that the king would even ask something so ridiculous. They stall for a bit. They argue with him. Give us some more time. Tell us, you're, you're being irrational, they tell him. No man, in verse 11, no man, no one can do such a thing for the king except the gods. And their dwelling is not with the flesh. It's a theological statement. It's one of the keys to this text. I hope you did not miss it when you read it. It's very theological. It reveals the belief system of the Babylonians about God, or gods, as they put it. Their gods are far off. They're out of reach. They're unknowable. They're hidden. They might be able to manipulate some things from them, but they can't truly know them. Their information, their wisdom is hidden from them. For all of the wise guys' studies, for all of their degrees, they and their religion comes up short, which affirms what the Bible tells us. We did a series in Proverbs a while ago, last summer. All of Scripture teaches us, wisdom apart from the all-wise one does not exist. We are unable to obtain wisdom apart from the giver of wisdom. And all the counterfeit religions, every single one of them, 
They come up short when it matters most. They're unable to deliver in the most pressing areas of need. In responding to crisis and offering comfort when we're anxious, especially in matters of life and death. Here's the truth, church. If it ain't Jesus, it's junk. If it ain't Jesus, it's junk. So the wise guys, they stall. They ask for the king to reveal the dream, to allow them to interpret it, but the king ain't having it. No way. He doesn't trust these guys, which is ironic, but he doesn't, and he gets angry. And here we see what the true colors of living in Babylon are really like. See, Babylon is a luxurious place. Lots of comforts, lots of really nice stuff, but it's also an incredibly vicious place. The king says, if these wise guys won't do what he has decreed, well, then he's going to turn them into a pile of body parts, and he's going to burn them their house. My middle son is fascinated by the big bad wolf, and I couldn't help but think, but as I read this, there's a big bad wolf on the throne in Babylon, right? Do what I say or I'll tear you from limb to limb and then I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff and I'm going to blow your house down. The toddler king, he's denied his demand. So he sets his plan into motion. The wolf goes on the hunt. Now we have a problem. We have a problem because, yes, the sorcerers are pagan, right? They're wicked, but... The people of God exist among them. Daniel and his friends have been recruited to this group. They were forced into the University of Babylon, and now they too are in the ranks of these wise guys. And because of that, they also are looking at death by dismemberment. It's a problem. It's a crisis, troubling to their spirits. How do they respond? Well, thankfully, their worldview is not a pagan one. Their worldview is biblical. Remember, they refused to be defiled by the king. They refused to be indoctrinated by the university. They refused to go by their Babylonian names. They knew who they were. More importantly, they knew who their God was. They determined that God had called them in Jeremiah 29 through the prophet to be good citizens, to work for the welfare of Babylon. That is, until they could no longer do so and still be good Christians. They too, like the king, are presented with a situation that troubles their spirit. But instead of turning to the religion of Babylon, they turn to the God of heaven and earth through prayer, through faith. Let's read a portion of it together. Daniel 2, starting in verse 17. Here's what it tells us. It says, Then Daniel went to the house, or went to his house, and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. He told them to seek the mercy of the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision, in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said thus to him, 
Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show him the interpretation. And then Arioch brought Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king, Another key statement, theological statement. Daniel answered the king, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that he has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. All right. I'm hoping, as you read this beforehand, as all of you did, that you can see the progression of events here. Crisis hits, hits the king, he's anxious, he turns to the experts, the stargazers, the stats guys, as we're so fond of consulting these days. He turns to his gods, his religion, which is a demonic counterfeit, and he comes up short. No comfort is found, no answers are found, only confusion, frustration, which results in violence and destruction, or at least the threat of it. It's demonic. This is how Satan rolls. Confuse, frustrate, divide, discourage, destroy. Now, compare that with Daniel. Daniel, too, is confronted with a crisis, but in his crisis, he turns not to paganism, but to the community of faith and to prayer. He turns to the God of heaven. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. It's important. He turns to his crew first, to the community of faith, and together they go to God in prayer. When you're saved, you're not saved as an individual. You're saved into a family. It's important for your faith, for your thriving in the faith, to remain connected to that family. Daniel turns to his crew, the community of faith, and together they turn to God. We're not told how long they pray, but we're told that they do pray. They seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, we're told, that God would reveal to them the truth and save their lives from the king. Church, we will see this all over, repeating itself over and over again in Daniel and throughout our lives as well. Daniel shows us what biblical faith looks like. See, he builds his life, his life on God's character and control even when he doesn't see what God is up to even when he doesn't like what is happening around him, even though he may not agree with God's timing. That's what biblical faith is. Faith is building your life on God's character, trusting in his sovereign control, even when you don't see what he's up to, especially when you don't like what's happening around you, and even when you don't agree with his timing. You still trust and believe in the God of heaven. Daniel throws his life upon the God of heaven in faith. He puts himself in a situation where if God doesn't show up, he is up a creek without a paddle. Talk about dependence. 
Talk about trust. If God doesn't show up, him and his buddies are dead. And also, notice this. This is a neat little fun fact for you. Daniel stalls just like the wise guys. Just like the wise guys. The wise guys fight with the king. They ask for more time. He says, no, do it now or I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Daniel stalls as well. But Daniel lives under grace. He lives under grace. And where the wise guys fail, Daniel is given grace before the king. I believe because God softens the king's heart and God is a God of grace. Daniel says, why don't we set a time a little later? I'll go talk with my God. We'll pray about it. I'll pray that he reveals this to me. I'll come back. I'll come back a little, a little later. It's a shrewd move, but he gets grace. He steps out in faith and God delivers. If you honor the Lord, he will honor you. God gives Daniel a vision. A vision is basically a dream, but you're awake for it. So I'm told. Never had one myself, but that's what a vision is. And if you've read this ahead of time, I'm hoping you caught this as well. The whole narrative is pretty fast-paced, right? It goes through the facts, here's what transpired, and then halfway through the story, Daniel kind of hits the slow-mo button, everything slows down, and he begins to praise the Lord. It's significant. It's really significant. It's almost as if Daniel, the author of the book, is declaring that he alone is not the only one who should be praising God. It's almost as if he invites you, the reader, to enter into the praise as well. He invites you to join with him. And this church is the key of this chapter, and it's also the key of thriving in Babylon. Daniel and his friends live for the praise of God's glory. They live to declare God's praise and glory. That is the goal of their life. They realize that God has not called them to take up arms and fight the culture. I've been hearing some people say that recently. When are we going to take up arms? If you're a Christian, I don't believe God is calling you to do that. He's not calling you to fight the culture. Nor is God calling you to conform or compromise to the culture. No, no. Instead, he is calling you to live for the well-being of Babylon, praising God as you do so courageously critiquing the culture when it fails to understand the truth and wisdom of God. That's what Daniel does. He lives to the praise of God's glory, and when needed, because he's rooted in who God is, he praises and declares the truth about who God is and how he's designed for us to live. And the rest of the chapter, then, is a statement to the God who deserves to be praised. As you were reading, you may wonder, who is this God? Why should we praise him? Well, Daniel tells us. He says, he is the God who was and is. Blessed be the name of this Lord forever and ever. Daniel says he's the God who gives wisdom. He reveals mysteries, things which angels long to look into. Our God reveals to his people. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the future. He tells the king what the future will be. Nebuchadnezzar's dream is prophetic. It's a prophetic prophecy about the rise and fall of nations. What God tells will happen, in fact, does happen, and we can see it throughout the history books. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. The head of gold in the statue in this dream represents your kingdom. I've set you up in this kingdom. Verses 37 and 38, it declares, God gave King Nebuchadnezzar, he gave him power and might and glory. He put the children of man and the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven under his rule. 
But Babylon, the golden head of the statue, God declares, you will not last forever. It's sneaky in there. Daniel has a tremendous amount of courage when he declares this to the king, the all-powerful one who can tear people apart and burn down their houses. He says, after you. You're the golden head. But after you, God will establish another kingdom. You're not going to rule forever, King Nebuchadnezzar. You too will die, like the rest of the children of men. And after you, I'll establish another kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. Almost like two arms and a statue, represented by the silver, two arms and a statue. They'll come and they'll go. And then God will establish another kingdom, the Greeks. During guess what age of history? The Bronze Age, represented by the bronze section on the statue. You can't make this stuff up, folks. It's what happened. The Greeks ruled for a while under the leadership of Alexander the Great. They came, God set them up, then he removed them. And he established a kingdom that ruled like iron, Rome. They established peace, the Pax Romana. How? Through violence and threats of violence, like a statue whose legs are made of iron. And in their greed, they outgrew themselves. They needed more, more territory, more peoples, and they conquered more until they grew so vast and so large that the people they conquered refused to be assimilated into the Roman way of life. And like a statue whose legs are made and feet are made of clay and iron, brittle, it crumbled. That's precisely what happened. Meanwhile, while the nations and the kingdoms of the world are raging, God, the God of the Bible who deserves your praise, is cutting out a new kingdom, the text tells us. A kingdom not made by human hands, cut out of stone. And at the perfect time, at the fullness of time, when the Roman roads are in place for the good news of the gospel to be able to be carried across the world on the beautiful feet of those who would declare it. At the perfect time, God will send the stone of his kingdom hurtling at the kingdoms of the world and he will establish the last and final kingdom, the only kingdom with a future, the only kingdom that will never perish, the kingdom of God. This is the God who deserves your praise, friends. He can tell the future. He is mighty. No demon, no king, no president or politician, no CEO of some tech company can stand before him or stand in his way. Demons may have control of some things, as they do here in Babylon and even here in America, but when the Spirit of God shows up, they're finished. The God of the Bible is mighty. He is the Most High. He controls time. In fact, he lives outside of it. He lives beyond it and above it. He controls the seasons, Daniel tells us. The weather, the snow that we're expecting, the meteorologists think is coming. God knows when and if and how much. He controls the weather. In Job, he tells Job, have you seen my storehouses? Do you know where I keep the hail? Do you know where I keep the snow? Can you wield lightning? I thought not. I can. The God of heaven has uncontrollable beasts on leashes as pets. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He removes kings, Daniel says, and he sets them up. He oversees elections. Even if there's fraud, God oversees all of it. 
He wields politicians and countries and nations like pawns on a chessboard to accomplish his purposes. And more than that, he gives wisdom, insight, and knowledge to those humble enough to acknowledge that the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Almighty God. This is the God of the Bible, friends. He deserves your praise because he reveals deep and hidden things. You see, for centuries, decades, eons of times, human beings, human beings have tried to discover what we can do to get to God. We've invented religions, deities, systems, mantras, all try trying to reach heaven. The Babylonians tried to build a tower. We look to technological advances and statistics, degrees from the universities. But God has shown us. He's made the wisdom of man look foolish. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, and through his word has revealed the hidden mysteries of salvation. There's no ladder. There's no system. There's no amount of work that you and I can ever do to elevate us to the divine. You can't get there. God, as the pagan sorcerer says, does not live with flesh. And yet, he determined to put on flesh, to leave the dwelling of heaven and make his home among us. His name is Jesus. He's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. He gives rest to the weary, and he shines light into darkness. In John chapter 1, we're told that in him is life, and this life is the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, but the darkness will not overcome it. To all who receive him, to all who praise him, he is given the right to become children of God. He promises to recreate you, to make you a being not born of flesh and blood, but to make you reborn as children of the Spirit. This word, the Logos, Jesus, the wisdom and light of God put on flesh. He left his dwelling of the gods and came to dwell among us. John continues, he says, For him and through him we have received grace upon grace. Jesus Christ has revealed the hidden things of God. He shined life into the darkness of our world and he makes the God of Daniel known to us again. If this God doesn't deserve your praise, I don't know which one does. So the question for you and I is this. Will you praise him? Or will you choose to live your life praising another? Nebuchadnezzar, he was presented with a crisis. Troubled in his spirit, he returns to his religion for comfort. It fails him. He's lost. Incredibly lost. And yet the God of heaven reaches out to him supernaturally. In power, he gives him a dream. Also, he reaches, him, reaches out to him through the people of God, through Daniel, who has chosen to live his life to display the glory of the Most High, declaring praise. Right then and there, the king is given an opportunity to repent, to join King Jesus, to switch loyalties, to forsake the demons, the experts, and trust in the power of the name of Christ alone to choose to live for his praise alone. Not his empire's praise, 
not as pagan deities, to live for God alone. What choice does he make? Sadly, he makes the choice that many continue to make to this day. He admires the power of God, but he refuses to be changed by it. He decides and determines to add this God to the pantheon of all his other deities. And instead of worshiping the God of the Bible, he bows to Daniel. And I believe he uses flattery and promotion to try and keep Daniel and Daniel's God under his thumb. He treats the king of heaven like a genie in a bottle to be manipulated through magic. He remains pagan. It's the story of humanity, friends. How often do we treat God like he's a genie that we can control or manipulate based on what we want? Worse than that, how often do we look to human leadership for deliverance over and above what the God of heaven can do for us in Jesus Christ? Daniel shows us another way. Daniel and his friends, too, are confronted with a crisis. They're seeking to be good citizens, like the prophet Jeremiah commanded them to do. They're working for the well-being of their culture. That is, until they can no longer do so and remain good Christians. At that point, then, they courageously confront the demonic counterfeit culture. How? By declaring the praises of the Lord Most High. It is my prayer that you and I would be empowered to live like that. May God give you and I the wisdom and grace to courageously live as good citizens of America until we can no longer do so as good Christians. And when that crisis of faith happens, I pray that God will not enable you to take up arms and fight this culture. I pray that God will not enable you to compromise to this culture. Instead, I pray that the God of heaven will enable you to stand with courage, to critique the culture by praising the only God who deserves your praise. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We confess we don't love you like we should. There are a lot of things in our lives that get more attention and more of our praise than they should. Lord Jesus, keep us from paganism. Keep us from counterfeit religions. Lord Jesus, remind us of the hidden mercies and wisdom that you displayed on the cross and in the resurrection. I pray that you would give us faith. You would give us faith, faith that would drive out fear. Lord, there's a lot to be afraid of. Money and economics and local governments and national governments and kings like wolves who threaten to huff and puff and blow our houses down. There's a lot of things to be afraid of, Father. But you have not called us to live a life of fear. You've called us to live a life of faith and of courage. Give us the ability to live for the well-being of our culture here in America. And also make us courageous to critique that culture when it refuses to give you the praise that is due your name. Enable us to live lives, lives of, of praise, Father. Give us the faith to do so for your glory and our joy. Amen.